Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 10th, 2021 in San Francisco. It's a lovely sunny day here. Uh, on the coast in Northern California, but the sun isn't really shining, I don't think, uh, extending that rather silly metaphor for the rest of America. The country, my sense at least, judging from San Francisco, is is, is, a, is a somber tone. It's a somber tone for a number of reasons. Of course, this is the day before the 20th anniversary of 9-11, but it's also a time where Americans are obsessed with decline. Uh, the Afghan chapter, this very sad last chapter in on the American misadventure in Afghanistan uh, has been dominating the headlines. Um, uh, most of America's leading journalists have been writing about it. Susan Glazer, or, or Glasser, who uh, is the best columnist, I think, in The New Yorker, has a wonderful piece out, Not Our Tragedy. The Taliban are coming back and America is still leaving. Rather dark piece. Um, and Peter Baker, the uh, political correspondent, the chief, I think, political correspondent for the New York Times, has an interesting piece about Joe Biden playing, quote unquote, the long game as he justifies the end of his forever war. It's somber. It's sad. Uh, Susan Glazer uh, even retweeted Robert Draper, uh, who's been on our show recently, one of the the great chroniclers of Americans' cat catastrophic wars in the Middle East. Uh, and I'm thrilled that both Susan Glasser and, uh, and Peter Baker are on the show today. Uh, got them together. They're America's best-known married journalist couple, true insiders, uh, both very distinguished. Uh, and they're the author of a book that came out last year that was a sensation, an instant classic that's just out in paperback, uh, The Man Who Ran Washington, a book about uh, James Baker. Um, let me throw this question out for one of you to, to jump on. Uh, Peter beforehand told me that the easy questions he'd take and Susan would take the hard ones. Um, am I right? Is there a somber mood in America today, the day before 9-11? in the aftermath of this catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan? Well, thank you so much, first of all, for having us on today. It, it's great to be with you and to have a chance to talk about some of this. It's, it's a reflective time, certainly, I would say, not just in Washington, but in the country. Uh, you know, the idea that the Taliban would uh, be in control of Afghanistan almost 20 years to the day after the United States went into Afghanistan to make sure that uh, the Taliban could no longer give safe harbor to Al-Qaeda, who was responsible for those horrific attacks, and that it really seems to almost too neatly uh, and too depressingly bookend right this this 20 year period and then i'm just struck by what's happening here inside the united states even if we don't talk about sort of the the humbling of a superpower there's a sense that 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 american democracy at home uh you know is troubled in a way that would have been inconceivable 20 years ago and you know just in the pandemic alone uh places like california are taking maybe tough measures to to stop it but in other big states in the country, you have a death toll 
uh, alone in Florida some days that would uh, be something like half that of what was killed on 9-11. In fact, right now, more than 600,000 Americans are dead in the pandemic. And in fact, every two days, we're seeing the equivalent of a 9-11's worth of American casualties. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a troubled country that's divided from within. Our friend Carlos Lozada wrote, I think, a very insightful piece in- Yes, in- Carlos has been on the show uh, uh, before uh, talking about his book on, on Donald Trump or his book analyzing all the other books on Donald Trump. Sorry, Susan, go on. Well, that's right. And this was looking at analyzing the books on sort of the literature of the post 9-11 period. And I was struck in particular by Carlos's takeaway, which is to say, uh, you know, that America has post-traumatic stress democracy, that in the end, uh, 20 years later, the real consequences of 9-11 are not uh, even so much in what mayhem we visited overseas in the name of retaliation, but what the consequences and, and the negative consequences were for our own democracy. Well, I haven't brought you guys on the show to be too somber because we are celebrating, as I said, the the publication, the paperback publication of your best-selling book, The Man Who Ran Washington, that, as I said, has been called an inside, uh, an instant classic by many people. But in terms of this book uh, about James Baker, uh, Peter, it inevitably brings out a degree of nostalgia, doesn't it, for a time that no longer exists, this remarkably efficient figure, almost a, a James Bond of politics who could always do the impossible. Shaken, not stirred. He'd love that. Yeah, look, you know, it's obviously, it's not a nostalgia book, but you can understand why people might feel nostalgic for a time that was less polarized than it is now. And it's hard to think about that because any of us who were raised in America in the 80s certainly remember them as being a pretty polarized time. We had, you know, very stark partisan differences, tough political warfare going on between the parties, Reaganism versus, you know, uh, the Democrats was, was a big cleavage, a big cleavage in America at the time. But certainly by comparison to today, it looks different, right? And James Baker's time was a time when, yes, they would fight it out at the ballot box. They would have really nasty campaigns at times, tr sometimes truly ugly ones. But when it was over, there was at least a period in which Republicans and Democrats would try to figure out a way to get things done. And that was what James Baker's particular skill set was. He was a fierce partisan as an election guy. He ran five presidential campaigns and not because he was a softie. But when it was over, the next day, he would try to reach across the aisle to figure out what could be done uh, within the contours of this political system. And remember, Reagan and Bush 41, the two presidents he worked for, never had a Republican Congress the entire time. They had the Senate for part of it, but the House is Democratic the entire time. So Baker's view was, hey, if we want to get stuff done, we're going to have to work across the aisle. That's not today, unfortunately. Today's attitude is the other way around. They use the time between elections to set up the next election, making arguments about various issues rather than looking for ways to come together. At least that's uh, the, the predominant feeling these days. Susan, um, as I suggested at the beginning uh, of this conversation, you're both insiders. You're both at the pinnacle of the journalistic careers. One, one of you at The New Yorker, the other at The New York Times, probably the leading newspaper and magazine uh, of coastal liberal America. How did that impact on your writing of this book, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Ultimate Washington Insider? Did you try to think of yourselves as outsiders or is it unavoidably an inside 
Washington book for inside Washington people? Well, I don't. I certainly don't think it's just a book for for Washington people. But I would remind you, in some ways, what is the definition of an insider in Washington? This is a place where everyone actually comes from somewhere else. The definition of an insider in Washington is somebody who came to Washington and stuck around for a long time. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, almost everybody was an outsider once, uh, with the possible exception of you know Catherine Graham. Um, you know, James Baker, in fact, is an interesting example of that, often portrayed and remembered as uh, the ultimate Washington insider, the ultimate establishment guy, uh, actually grew up and spent the first 40 years of his life, not only in Texas, uh, but in a family that believed that Washington was almost synonymous with the devil uh, and that, you know, being in politics was something uh, almost disgraceful. Uh, and there was not uh, a tradition of doing the kinds of things that, that he had done in his family. Uh, in fact, uh, he was the son, grandson, and great-grandson of uh, lawyers in Texas who had essentially been like builders of, of the modern city of Houston. And uh, for him, it was actually an act of rebellion to go into politics as well as a sort of a, a midlife crisis. Uh, in some ways, Peter and I learned in working on this book that you know Jim Baker was the ultimate, uh, probably the most successful ever mid-career switch, but <laughs> he definitely wasn't uh, a Washington insider born. He was definitely uh, a, a member of America's most privileged uh, cast. Uh, he was a, you know, a white male uh, from a wealthy family in the mid-century, an Ivy League graduate, uh, uh, who basically was, uh, you know, to the country club born, if you will. And so he was, you know, uh, came from extraordinary privilege, but, um, you know, like others, he came to Washington and found that he thrived on politics of that moment in time. Because I do think your question is really um, an important question about, uh, you know, is this a book of nostalgia or looking back? It's not nostalgia, but it is definitely a story both about a person, Jim Baker, but also about Washington itself and how it's changed. Uh, and what, if anything, can we get out of looking back to this historical moment that is pretty definitively past, uh, you know, from the vantage point of 2021 and all of its terrible problems? There is, of course, a nostalgia for the past, for the consensual, if that ever existed, uh an age where people didn't scream at one another or at least listen to one another. But of course, the past of America is also a tragic past, particularly of racism. Um, a couple of days ago, I had the CNN commentator Keith Boykin on. He has a, a nice book out, new book out, Re Race Against Time. I don't know if either of you uh, have read the book, but uh, you know Keith, of course. And in the book, he talks quite a lot about Willie Horton and, of course, about George H.W. Bush and the racism, which in his view at least was endemic both uh, to George H.W. Bush and also to his son. I, I don't want to get into the whole subject of whether or not uh, Jim Baker was a racist, but he came from Texas. His family was very much involved in, 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 in the post-Civil War age. Um, what, in your view, you spent a lot of time with Baker. How concerned is he with the racial history of America, with its tragedy and its injustices, and with the fact that uh, its final chapter is far from being written? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. And you're right, Jim Baker and George H.W. Bush were authors of you know the 1988 campaign against Michael Dukakis, which did involve that Willie Horton 
uh, you know, issue. And for those who might not remember it, because a lot of people are younger than we are, you know, Willie Horton was a, a convicted murderer from Massachusetts. He was allowed out on a furlough program and while on furlough, uh, you know, committed a violent crime in Maryland. That was used to go after Michael Dukakis because he was governor of Massachusetts and supported this furlough program. But because Willie Horton was African-American and he was used in this ad produced by some Republican allies uh, or supporters of, of then Vice President Bush in a way that made it look very uh, race oriented, uh, it became one of those inflaming issues. And there's no question about it, that that was something that Bush benefited from. Now, what Baker would tell you is we didn't authorize that ad. That was done by a separate committee. But the truth is they had his campaign had used Willie Horton as a wedge issue, even without using that specific ad anyway. And it was one of the, I think, moments that I think presaged some of the racial politics that would come uh, after that from all the way from 1988 to 2020 uh, with Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. So I think there's a real you know, important lesson there about that. Now, do I think Baker is a racist? We never heard him say anything like that from him. I think he's concerned with race relations in this in this country. He's obviously, uh, you know, uh, you know, an older generation. He's 91 at this point. Uh, but he, I think, you know, has he came from an establishment uh, of an era where race relations were were not put front and center as the, uh, uh, you know, the, the way that they are now. Now, remember George H.W. Bush did sign a reauthorization of the Civil Rights Act, uh, which, you know, other, other Republican presidents might not have done. Certainly you haven't heard anybody more recently from, uh, you know, the Trump era talking about civil rights as a priority. And so there are, you know, I think George H.W. Bush, his family uh, had been supporters of the NAACP. Uh, at the same time, you know, Bush had his own complicated history with that. He, he opposed in the 1960s the original Civil Rights Act, came to regret it, and supported instead, therefore, the Fair Housing Act. So there's, I think that Baker and Bush are part of the Bonner Republican Party's struggle to figure out where they stood on civil rights uh, before the Trump era sort of reimagined the whole thing in a much more visceral and ugly way. But, you know, I, I just want to answer the question about Baker himself, because one of the things we, we were curious about this question, I should say, ourselves, of course, uh, in embarking on this. And, and, and we found a number of just really interesting, provocative, but maybe not uh, entirely clear from the point of view of coming up with a, a definitive answer, things in Baker's own biography. I mean, one of the amazing things about Baker, right, is that uh, he was this privileged son of the, the white upper class uh, in the South, in Texas, but uh, basically evinced no interest whatsoever that we could find in any public issues, right? So he lived through uh, the civil rights era uh, in the 1960s in Texas. Uh, these, uh, you know, the extraordinary events that were sort of transforming American political and public life, uh, the Vietnam protests, the women's movement. He wasn't interested in any of it, uh, at least full access to all of his archives, all the papers that he kept. Uh, you know, he never even wrote letters that mentioned any of these kind of transformative public events. The other thing that I found really- So, so what, what, what would you conclude from that, Susan? What are you implying? Uh, well, first of all, I think that he's not, uh, you know, BSing when he says that politics was something he came late to. Uh, you know, this wasn't a guy who grew up, uh, you know- Well, that's no excuse. I mean, you don't have to be in politics to understand profound injustice. Well, I-, I Again, I, you know, your argument isn't with me, but I think as a biographer, what we were trying to answer your questions and we found the fact that it was hard to do so, I think, to be revealing of the bubble of privilege and isolation that Baker lived and operated in. The other thing that you should know that is very interesting is that 
he is not only the son, grandson, and great-grandson of lawyers in Texas, but his great-grandfather, the reason that politics was seen as taboo in his family was because the only person who was ever served in politics before Jim Baker was his great-grandfather, who immigrated uh, internally from Alabama to Texas mm. uh, in the years before the Civil War. He was a slaveholder uh, and was an elected judge in the Confederacy for one year before then enlisting to serve uh, in the Confederate Army. And then he was thrown out. Uh, sorry, I have that opposite way around. He was enlisted in the Confederate Army, then served one year and was elected as a judge, thrown out after the South lost the Civil War. And um, from then forward, you know, the family wanted nothing to do uh, with electoral politics. So make of that history what you will, but we found it to be fascinating. Yeah, it was fascinating. And I also, another part of the book that I found fascinating was your was your coverage. I'm not sure if this is just in the paperback or whether it was in the hardback as well about uh, your conversations about Trump um, with him. As you note in the book, uh, both Bushes came out explicitly and publicly against Trump, said they wouldn't vote for him. He was much more ambivalent. You suggest, I think, or correct me if I'm wrong, you suggest um, that he may have voted for Trump, although he didn't much care for him. Do you think the fact that he wasn't as repulsed by Trump uh, as many other more traditional Republicans may have been because he wasn't disgusted by uh, some of the, the cultural attitudes uh, that went with Trump? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, so we started this book before Trump was on the scene. We started back in 2013 when Obama was president because we thought Washington was already broken then and that Baker was a really interesting way to tell the story of how Washington changed. And then Trump arrives during the process of writing this book. And so every conversation we then had over the course of several years with Secretary Baker ended up involving Trump because it was just inevitable. And he was disgusted by Trump in so many different ways. He used words like crazy, nuts, he didn't like the divisiveness. He didn't like the insult politics. He didn't like the polarization that, uh, that, that Trump not only encouraged, but, but, but uh, profited from. And he didn't like just sort of the whole attitude that Trump brought to public service. But can I just interrupt, Peter, just here? Uh, because I read that with some care. I was fascinating, your, your conversations. His critique of Trump was always, or at least to his, to his face when they met or they talked, it was never a moral one. It was never, well, you're wrong. This is, this, is, this is just disgusting. Rather, it was, this is politically unwise. You need to behave in a different way. Do you think he was morally repulsed or is morally repulsed by Trump and his movement? Yeah, I do think he is, but I think you're right that he tends to frame things when he talks about politics in the, uh, the language of pragmatism and what is doable. And so why does he vote for Trump, right? That's the question you asked, which is a great question. Why, after all that, why, given the moral outrage that so many Republicans like uh, the Bushes had, would he vote for Trump? And the answer is a pretty pragmatic, if coldly uh, cynical one, which is that, you know, Bush, I mean, the, the Trump is going to enact policies that he prefers on taxes, regulation, Supreme Court justices, that kind of thing. It's a very much of the moment, which is why I think it's so interesting, because he reflects, I think, the modern Republican Party that came to accept Trump, even if they didn't particularly like him, on this idea that basically we're a tribal nation. You're either part of that side or this side. And my side is right, no matter who the person uh, is at the, at the leadership of it. Uh, you in, in the book, you make, and it's an obviously uh, a comparison, you make the comparison with Dean Asherson as, you know, the original wise man of Washington with Baker. You conclude, though, that he isn't 
wise, perhaps, or he is wise, but perhaps not in the same way as Asherson, Susan. Perhaps make this comparison between Baker and the classic wise men of post-war uh, American foreign and domestic policy. Well, I think you're right to, to point out that, uh, you know, Jim Baker wasn't, uh, you know, a, a career foreign policy specialist. Uh, you know, he didn't have a, a theory of the world that he was trying to offer when he became Secretary of State at the end of the Cold War, which which in many ways, by the way, is the reason that we started out being interested in doing the biography. It turned out that there was just so much of a fuller uh, picture and, and so much more to the story, but just his four years alone as Secretary of State at the end of the Cold War would be worthy of uh, you know a full length exploration. Uh, this this happened to be one of the hinge points of history, and I think his and Bush's you know kind of stewardship of that uh, you know landing the plane safely more or less uh, was was a remarkable period of time. But you know Baker brought this calculating, cold eyed, pragmatic hyper-realist view of politics into the job of being an international diplomat in the same way that he had uh, before that to national politics, to being Reagan's uh, White House chief of staff. Uh, you know, he wasn't an ideologue then or ever. Uh, and so that's part of the reason that he had this natural ability, I think, to sit down and negotiate, whether it was with Democrats on Capitol Hill when they made the 1986 tax reform or Soviets uh, in, in 1991, when trying to figure out how to make uh, the reunification of Germany happen after the extraordinary fall of the Berlin Wall, which is probably the high point of Baker's diplomacy. And so, you know, the the wise men of the best and the brightest, you know, Halberstam's tragic history, say, of uh, the Vietnam War going back to Dean Acheson, president of the creation, you know, they were a different fraternity, uh, you know, born solely in the East Coast, uh, not coming out of Texas like Jim Baker, uh, and, and shaped more profoundly, I think, by their experience in the world and thinking about international relations. Whereas Jim Baker, the truth is, was a corporate lawyer who was damn good at negotiating deals and, and had a natural feel for politics. I wonder whether, if there is a tragedy about Baker, and, and it's not his fault, that's where it lies. Um, Peter, that was a really nice piece by Jim Tankersley, one of, the, one of your colleagues at the New York Times, about uh, Biden's new vaccine push and a, is a fight for the U.S. economy. I think it's in the paper today. Tankersley's been on the show and he has a new book out, or not so new now, it was new last year, about how to revive the middle class in America. These big structural issues, infrastructure, was not something that Baker ever gave any thought to, did he? Was he, in a sense, and I, I don't mean him personally, but the group of people who worked in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s and 90s, are they responsible ultimately for the infrastructure crisis in America, for this crisis of the middle class, for the fact that the country is in, it seems to be in, structural, economic, cultural, uh, social decline? Should Baker have moved beyond that Machiavellian thirst for intrigue and power and, 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 and victory? and address some of the more substantial problems with America before now they've exploded on us today? Yeah, look, I think one of the things that Baker would tell you is that they had come into office with Reagan, uh, an economy that was at the time in great trouble, right? That there was high inflation, interest rates, and unemployment, and that they had to, to, to find a way to conquer that in order to get the economy back 
going in, which arguably they did. Now, whether or not that had longer term consequences is the next question, right? Is the income gap that we see today, is the opportunity gap that we see today a product of some of the policies that were put in place when Baker uh, was in power? That's a, that's a perfectly reasonable argument to have. Infrastructure, ironically, would be the kind of thing if Baker were in power today, he would love to work on because it is a concrete, you know, nuts and bolts kind of issue rather than ideological one. What he doesn't like are wedge issues. He doesn't like it uh, dealing with issues like abortion and gun control and, you know, gay rights and-, and, and, and Why? Like because they're not solvable. You, you say there are three kinds of problems for, for Baker. Mm -hmm. Ones which are easy to solve, he has no interest. Ones which are impossible to solve, he has no interest. And the, the ones that can be solved, those are the ones he focuses on. No, because they're divisive uh, and you can't persuade the other side. Uh, and there are no real deals to be had. Uh, you know, Baker was not a culture warrior. He wasn't a Reagan revolutionary, although he did as much or more than anyone else to uh, make it successful in many ways. Uh, but that was in part because he wasn't an ideologue. You talked about the economy, and I think Peter's right. It's a really interesting and important question uh, for people to look at what were the you know long-term impacts of Reaganism. But remember that it was George H.W. Bush who called Reagan's uh, economics voodoo economics in the 1980 primary campaign. Baker's objection to that, by the way, is fascinating because it tells you a lot about him. He was mad at George Bush for saying that in speech, not because he disagreed with it, but because he was worried politically it would be harmful to Bush and that Bush might alienate uh, you know, the powers that be uh, in the Reagan side and therefore deprive himself of the chance to become vice president. That tells you a lot about his pragmatism. But he wasn't a supply sider and he definitely wasn't a culture warrior. That was the moment of the rise of religious fundamentalism. A lot of the uh, trends in the Republican Party that later arguably came to take over the Republican Party, Baker and Bush were actually on the other side of those internal arguments in the 1980s. Uh, Susan, we had, uh, again, we, I have all your colleagues on the show. I had Evan Osnos, the biographer of Joe Biden, on the show recently. He writes a lot for The New Yorker. Uh, and we talked about Joe Biden, or at least in my view, Joe Biden's bemusement of being around in 2021. He seems almost lost as if he doesn't. He's wandered in from the world of, of, um, of Jim Baker. Uh, what does the book, uh, The Man Who Ran Washington, tell us about Biden and Biden's challenge and the fact that he seems kind of lost. I mean, he's much more comfortable in, in Jim Baker's world than in the world of Black Lives Matter and retreating from Afghanistan, isn't he? You know, I, that is a really good question, I think. I've been certainly struck uh, by that. Uh, the period that Peter and I are writing about in this book is uh, fundamentally, you know, sort of Joe Biden's heyday in some ways. In fact, uh, you know, I was reading a book about the Carter presidency recently, you know, this year. Joe Biden was the very first Democratic senator to endorse Jimmy Carter in the 1976 primaries. Uh, you know, I mean, that's just breathtaking, right? You know, do you remember who you supported in the 1976 primary? Were you even around uh, for them, right? I mean, it's it's kind of remarkable that the scale of Biden's career, and certainly he has a vision of a world in which deal making of the kind that Baker engaged with was possible. Baker uh, and Biden are are similar Washington types in that regard, but they're also similar in this sense. Both Baker and Biden. Uh, you know, it's been said about Biden that he's had an unerring uh, instinct and, and knows for the center 
uh, of the Democratic Party and has moved always to get himself there. Uh, Baker, likewise, has a pretty unerring sense for where his party is going. And to me, that is actually what explains uh, why he was interested in and, and, and the Trump phenomenon and even reluctantly voted for him because he understood that's where the center of gravity of the Republican Party went. Similarly, I think Joe Biden has changed because his political instincts are to go where his party goes. And that's why you see him pursuing uh, legislatively, certainly a, a very progressive agenda that people might not have expected from the kind of uh, more centrist election campaign that he ran in 2020 against Trump, which was essentially appealing to the better angels of people's nature, appealing to our desire for normalcy and competence and, uh, you know, really not saying, well, I, if you elect me, I'm going to become uh, the reincarnation of LBJ. And what Biden and, uh, and Baker also have in common is they're both uh, victims of a terrible family tragedies uh, and very, very committed family men. Peter, yeah. perhaps you might take that on. Yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly right. Uh, Jim Baker, in fact, gets into politics at age 40 in part because his first wife dies of cancer at that time. And there's a lot of uh, stuff in the book that's never been out there before about that period of his life when he basically learns that, that Mary Stewart, his first wife, is is, is terminal, the one person he confides in, the only person he confides in is actually George H.W. Yeah. his friend from the t tennis court of the Houston Country Club, which tells you a lot about their relationship. Who saved him, in Who a saved sense. Him. He says, basically, look, after you know his wife dies, he says, look, you got to deal with this grief. Why don't you come work with me on my Senate campaign? And it, it sort of propels Baker into a new world. And I think that tragedy defined him, obviously, for a period. He had four young boys left. He had a father by himself. You know, he, his, he, we, we talked to his nanny, who's still around at 108 years old, I think. And she said that at that time, she remembered him just staring out the window lost in this period. He told us that if he was ever going to become an alcoholic, it would have been in that period. He was, he was devastated by that, uh, by that tragedy. Ultimately, remarries and creates a new family, in effect, of merged children to the point that have eight children all together. Mm. And I think in a way that does have some similarity to, to, to Biden's story of, of family loss and, and recovery. Yeah, there's a man there, uh, Susan, isn't there? Beneath all the the, the slick suits, the, the, the good looks or the sharp looks and the, uh, and, and the Machiavellian politics. Uh, we, we talked beforehand. Uh, I had a very dear friend, Andrew Carpendale. He's not in the book, but you, you, you know his story quite well. He's a very dear friend of mine from grad school. He worked for Baker. He worked for Dennis Ross, who worked for Baker. And Andrew, unfortunately, suffered quite seriously from uh, mental illness. And, and James Baker was always very sympathetic to that. So there was a man behind the myth, wasn't there, Susan? Oh, absolutely. I think, again, you know, it's the, you know, he wasn't a, an ideologue when it came to, you know, you asked about things like morality, decency, you know, totally legit things to ask when it comes to Donald Trump or the Republican Party. He didn't wear that and doesn't wear that on his sleeve, uh, you know, but I found him to, to be, as you said, that, you know, the kind of person who uh, is fundamentally, you know, very decent in, in what you would say is a, a sort of an old fashioned way. Uh, and um, the story of uh, your friend, Andrew, you know, is is one of, you know, real human tragedy. Baker had uh, not just this tragedy of his wife, but um, he, he is a flawed person in a way that he was remarkably open 
about with us because he is this legendary figure, right? Like he's this sort of almost cult figure, Democrats and Republicans alike really still venerate him in Washington because he's seen as an extreme example of success and competence in a city that kind of worships success and competence. But, you know, he, he screwed up as a dad. It wasn't just when his young yeah. boys were young, his kids were doing drugs. This was, you know, they had this combined family of eight kids. Guess what? It was like the Brady Bunch, if the Brady Bunch was from hell. Uh, you know, it, it, it was a, a family that took a long time to, to meld together, uh, full of uh, troubled kids. And Baker was basically an absent dad. He wasn't whatever the opposite of a feminist was. He left his, his second wife, Susan, to sort of heroically deal with four children in middle school at the same time, all in different schools. Uh, you know, he when she found out he was going to become the chief of staff of the White House, she burst into tears. First of all, he hadn't told her in advance. She found out on the night that Ronald Reagan was elected by overhearing said conversation at the party. Uh, you know, and he's grown, I think, enough to be able to talk about that in ways that suggest somebody who has has worked hard to process it. And then the other thing that's interesting to me, right? You do want to understand what's the motivation of these public figures, right? Who often are written about in in terms that are not really very human and. You know, you have to look back into the story of someone's life, uh, their background. You know, the real bottom line with Baker is not only the family tragedy later in life, but the incredible burden of this family history uh, and of a, a micromanaging father who yeah. was strict and of the old school that Baker and his friends uh, jokingly called him the warden. If your dad's nickname is the warden, you know, and he's even micromanaging your life when you're a married man who's graduated uh, from law school, who's working independently, who has several children and a wife. And your father is sending you notes, as we found in the archive, saying like, you know, here, Jimmy, here's $25 to pay uh, the babysitter. Here's money for your wife's birthday present. Uh, you know, you are really talking about somebody uh, who had a lot to overcome psychologically. And Peter, maybe you should tell that story that we love uh, that kind of sums that up about his mother. Uh, when he became the Secretary oh. of State. Yeah, so <laughs> he's Secretary of State and his mother, who at that point was, I think, in her 90s, oh, yeah. late 80s anyway, says, now, now, Jimmy, what are, you, what are you Secretary of again? I'm Secretary of State, Mom. <laughs> Secretary of State of what? Secretary of State of the whole United States. Yes, Mom. And she said, well, I don't think your father would have allowed that. That is <laughs> yes, so brilliant. His father wouldn't have been proud of him for being Secretary of State, told you a lot about the upbringing. Do you think, uh, final question, guys, I appreciate so much time on this. Um, do you think in 2021, the, the, the ultimate lesson of all this in moral terms is you can't just be a decent guy. He clearly was a decent or is a decent guy, a good family man. I don't think he has any evil in him. But you can't be above ideology or politics anymore. You can't be Jim Baker today, can you? Hmm. <laughs> Wait, with all the hard questions go to you. Now, so look, I think that you can't be Jim Baker today. It's true. It's a different environment. The environment in Washington uh, doesn't accommodate a person like Jim Baker in the way it used to. And that's, in fact, one of the reasons why I think Biden does struggle. He's trying to be uh, a Jim Baker. He's trying to play by the rules of the old days, and it's not there. And people want you to sh to show more of a moral. He even seems to be dressing in uh, in Baker's suits. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And he's trying Baker's kind of deal. But people, what did, what did Biden's Democrats want him to do? They, it's not just enough to say, I want infrastructure. What they want to do is to be a moral leader on race, on voting rights, on mm. abortion, on all of these issues that are there that and are really, really important right now. And Biden is kind of 
you know, he's trying to give voice to that to make sure that his, his party is happy with him. But he also is trying to focus strictly on what he thinks he can get through Congress. And it's a battle between his version of pragmatism and the moral leadership that his party wants him to, to show right now. Similarly, on the Republican Party, you heard people like Chris Christie say it's time for us to show moral leadership on not lying to the public and, and, and becoming, you know, not not doing the kinds of things Donald Trump did. So it's a moment of time, I think you're right, where politicians are being called on to show moral leadership on all kinds of issues. Some of them are rising to the occasion and some of them aren't. Uh, and Susan, do we have to be an AOC or a Donald Trump these days? Is 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 there no middle ground left? You know, that that is the proposition, I think, that is being tested right now. And of course, you know, there'll be endless arguments over who started it. But the the, the sad truth is that we have had many cycles in our history before uh, where the extremes are uh, activated, triggered uh, uh, and leading in our politics. And, you know, one set of extremes begets another. Uh, and that's the nature of polarization is that it pushes both parties in our two-party system to the extremes. Uh, both Baker and Joe Biden in different ways, uh, you know, are creatures of a different era. We're back to first principles. You know, call it a debate about moral leadership, call it a debate about first principles. Uh, what matters and why? What nature of democracy do we have? What's the relationship between the states and the federal government? What's the obligation uh, of our, our leaders or our country to provide uh, for, uh, you know, freedom, versus responsibility to community. Those are the kinds of debates and questions we're having because we're in the middle of serious crises. You know, Baker was a product, let's be clear, of an exceptional period in American history, the late Cold War uh, and the extreme global dominance of the United States after World War II relative to almost any other power. That was an exception in history. It wasn't the rule. And it meant that a lot of these fundamental debates just weren't had. The, the differences between the parties were not nearly as big as they are today. And unfortunately, you don't get to pick the moment of history that you live through. Uh, so this is the one that we all have. <laughs> it's a serious moment, but we do have one thing to celebrate. Uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser wrote a 600-page book on uh, on James Baker, and they're still married. So congratulations <laughs> on that. Who did all the writing, by the way? I assume it was Peter. All the, all the good stuff no, was no. done by Susan. <laughs> Wow. Wonderful achievement. Tremendous book. Fascinating. Congratulations on that. Book's just out in paperback. Uh, finally, uh, you I assume you're at your home in D.C. Is, is that the kitchen behind you? Well, it's a kitchen. Behind. We are working. Uh, we're hiding out in, a, in, a, in our in Susan's family's home working on a book, another book. Another book. Wow. Yeah. And you're still... Congratulations. I need a wife like yours, uh, Peter. Um, well, what else, in addition to uh, the man who ran Washington, which is just out in paperback, in these strange times, in these times where uh, we're not quite sure what to make of the world, what should we be reading? Uh, Peter, perhaps we'll begin with you. What other books, in addition to the man who ran Washington? Well, there's so many, of course. I just finished reading uh, Garrett Graff's book, uh, an, oral, an oral history of 9-11 called The Only Plane in the Sky. And, you know, given their timing, it feels very appropriate mm. to read that right now. Really powerful. It's not uplifting, I guess, in the sense of, of being happy, but there is uplifting in the sense of the heroism and the and the fortitude and the resilience of the people who responded that day. Um, a happier book or at least less of a tragic book. I read recently uh, Gary Ginsburg's book called First Friends. It's about presidents and their best friends. That's kind of a more uplifting book, I suppose. Not as much tragedy in there anyway. So um, I could go on and on. There's so many. No, great well, uh, Susan, a couple of books from you and then I'll let you go. 
Back to well, your book. <laughs> you mentioned my colleague, Evan Osnos, and he has a new book coming out next week, actually, in fact, called Wildland, which is, uh, you know, if ours is a book about uh, what happens inside Washington, his is an effort, a very ambitious effort to explain uh, the, the change in America that led to uh, Trump in the first place. And it's rooted, I think, in three very provocative locations. One is... Uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, where Evan grew up, another son of privilege. Uh, yeah, and I've had his father on the show as well, who's, a, who's an icon, a, a legend in publishing circles. So, well, yeah. that's right, actually. And a predecessor of ours as Moscow uh, bureau chief of the Washington Post. Yeah. That's a story. But Greenwich, Connecticut is one location and talking about the world of Wall Street and high finance and, you know, their sort of bargain with the devil of uh, Donald Trump. But the other locations are West Virginia and Chicago. Mm. And I really, I really recommend this book. It's, it's a deep uh, counterpoint and explanation of how we got to where we are today. Again, as Peter said, it might not be so uplifting. Uh, the truth is I've sort of given up on uplift when it comes to nonfiction and my preferred escapism is reading cookbooks. Uh, so. <laughs> Well, that, is that why you're talking from your kitchen? Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, Susan Glaser, Glasser and Peter Baker, again, congratulations on this wonderful achievement. Uh, the book is, uh, is, is a wonderful read. The Man Who Ran, Was uh, Ran Washington, just out in paperback. Good luck with the new book. Good, good luck with the marriage. I'm going to hunt Evan now down and, and get him on the show. And I hope I'll get you back on the show in the not-too-distant future because it's a real a privilege and a pleasure to have two such articulate and, um, uh, and uh, honest journalists on the show. Thank you so much. Thank, and thank you. you so much. We really time. enjoyed it. What a great conversation.